This is the seventh Sunday after Epiphany. We have one more Sunday after Epiphany to go, and then we're on to Lent on Ash Wednesday. Today, two readings I want to preach about from Leviticus and from Matthew. We, know, we don't read very much from Leviticus. It's probably a good thing. So I want to say some things about the book of Leviticus and see why it's in the readings, because in Matthew's gospel today, in one sense, Jesus is standing what is said in the reading from Leviticus today on its head and giving us a a, a different perspective about um, God's way with the world. Before that, though, the major themes of both of these readings are about holiness And holiness is a tricky word. Uh, I'm going to talk briefly later about uh, a line in Matthew's gospel at the very end of today's reading. You must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what in the world do we mean when we speak of that? And holiness, to some degree, has to do with the achievement of a, a certain species of holiness, In English, uh, holiness comes from an old English word called haligness, which means without spot or blemish. But we usually understand holiness both in the sense of the Hebrew Bible and of the New Testament as a kind of setting apart. Three ways we could maybe explain it. One would be a priestly sense of holiness, the idea of emphasizing separation, purity, and segregation for cult. You know, even in Christianity, we have these issues and difficulties because there's uh, some Christians of an evangelical bent who believes in something called the doctrine of separation. And the doctrine of separation is that you simply do not associate with people who don't believe as you do. You separate them, you, you from them, yourselves from them. And they use a, a biblical passage, for example, can't remember what Old Testament book it's in, but be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. So sometimes the extreme interpretation of what that sense of separation is uh, does more to tear down than to build up. There is a prophetic holiness which emphasizes the relationship between worship, social justice, and conversion of heart. And then there is sapiential holiness. Sapiential is a word meaning wisdom. The clergy conference this month uh, I was not able to attend because we were contending here with an eruption of effluent in the downstairs offices. But the, the, the person who conducted the retreat uh, is an Episcopal priest by the name of Cynthia Bourgeault. I think that's how her last name is uh, pronounced, but from now on I'll call her Cynthia. I didn't get to hear her there, but I was familiar with her, and there are a number of YouTube videos where she's interviewed or talking to people. She's a great friend of Father Thomas Keating. 
And uh, uh, she wrote a book about her relationship with him and about centering prayer and the contemplative life and so forth. But in one of the interviews, uh, she was asked about the wisdom tradition. And she said, you know, wisdom isn't increasing always, increasing your knowledge. It's about increasing your sight into things which has to do with your experience and your relational life and so forth. So you now understand at a deeper level. And by virtue of that, what you learn from that is your ability to commend commend it to other people. To say, this is what this practical wisdom has provided for me uh, on my spiritual journey, in my life experience, uh, in my career aspirations, and the things that uh, are right in front of me, my family and so forth. So that type of holiness is present as well. Clearly, it involves something uh, that, that is part of what uh, I call the, the mystical journey. In the Anglican tradition, there are two spiritual threads that have run through our 500-year history. The first one, which is the most recent, but I'm using first because I need to focus on the other one, which is more ancient. The the, the first one is called pietism. And pietism is the belief in the necessity for a felt experience of God. That is the authenticating thing. Like John Wesley, an Anglican priest, originally, always all his life, who said when he heard St. Paul's epistle to the Romans read to him at Aldersgate, he felt his heart strangely warmed. You know, a lot of us have had conversion experiences of, of all kinds that may not necessarily have a religious connection, but they had some kind of a influence on uh, changing the direction of our life in a positive way. But in the Christian sense, pietism is something that is very influential. And of course, in this country, I suppose we could use the term born again to understand something about this felt experience. My teacher, Urban Holmes, one of my teachers at Neshota House, wrote a book Uh, about 30 years ago now called What is Anglicanism? And in the chapter on spirituality, he talked about pietism. And then he talked about what I prefer and what Terry Holmes preferred, which is mysticism. It's an unfortunate term, but it means, in his case, the movement towards the ascent to God that involves uh, five things that you can put in your hands and do. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. Purgation is an old-fashioned term for purging from your habits of being and relating those things that keep you from being centered in God or from focusing on what you need to do to fulfill your obligations. 
emptying is cultivating the practice in your private and even corporate prayer of removing from you the distractions that keep you from focusing on worshiping God. Nobody can do that perfectly, but you can learn to push those things to the side. Father Keating, when he was, talks about centering prayer, he said, when you start doing this, you sit quietly. It's going to be like sitting in front of the Suez Canal while all the ships go by, right? Distractions. I remember many, many years ago, I was at the monastery, St. Gregory's Monastery in Three Rivers, Michigan. And uh, I said to one of the priests, one of the monks there, you know, I'm just having a terrible time with being so distracted. And he said, well, David, here's the thing that I do. When you're distracted and you're coming into the chapel or you're there, just say, "Uh, God, I'm so distracted. What I'm offering you today is my distraction. That's what you get from me. Emptying, purgation, emptying, study, being the best student you can be about the deep things of Christian faith and belief. And also, the best student you can be about all the things you need to be a good student about, you know, keeping up. Don't you hope that when you go to your doctor that they're reading the literature? (laughs) I certainly do. Right? So it's important to keep up. And finally, the hardest one for all of us is patience. The, the, The need to understand that this maturing process of spiritual maturity is done in God's time, not ours. So we shouldn't prejudge, either prejudge or rush the process. So these things are ways, actually, of cultivating holiness. In the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is the third book in the Pentateuch, or in the Torah. And it's probably the book about, it's the book about regulations and the nature of worship and so forth. The book of Leviticus is, rests in two crucial beliefs. The first, that the world was created very good and retains the capacity to achieve that state, although it is vulnerable to sin and defilement. The second, that the faithful enactment of ritual makes God's presence available while ignoring or breaching it compromises the harmony between God and the world. And in Leviticus, failure to do that means there's going to be big trouble for you and plenty of it. But on the affirmative side, it is a location for the affirmation of the importance and the necessity of worship. And for Episcopalians reading this, a liturgical church where worship is at the center, it's important to know that that is something that is uh, what we do and constitutes us, even in the midst of our distraction or unbelief or whatever, that our public worship is absolutely essential. The traditional view is that Leviticus was compiled by Moses or that the material in it goes back to his time but internal clues suggest that it originated in post-exilic, that is, after 538 BCE, the Babylonian exile uh, coming back, Leviticus now uh, gets written. 
Scholars are practically unanimous that the book had a long period of growth, that it includes some material of considerable antiquity, and that it reached its present form in the Persian period, 538 to 332 BCE. So Leviticus, uh, you know, says you must love God as yourself. That's where we get it from. And Leviticus today, these are called general, uh, general items of regulation. And it talks about how you're not to uh, harvest your field to the edges, how you're to leave something for the sojourner, how you're not to treat your neighbor badly, how you're not to do all these things, all of these rules. Some of them sound a lot like the Ten Commandments. But here's the thing. In Leviticus, those proscriptions apply only to Jews. That's how Jews are to treat Jews. Not how they're to treat somebody else. Several years ago, before uh, Father Ernest Cockrell retired uh, as the rector of St. Andrew's Church, he uh, participated, as we all do, Los Gatos has one, in the uh, Thanksgiving interfaith service. And uh, for these services, out of an overweening solicitude for one another, we create a service that is so diluted and watered down that it is almost ridiculous. I'm recording this, so I can't deny that I said it, okay? <laughs> So they were working on the service, getting it together, what the liturgy was going to be, and so forth. And Ernest went to the meeting, and they had, uh, in, the, in the liturgy that they did, they had uh, prayers of the people, like we were going to say in a few minutes. And in the prayers of the people, there was a petition to forgive our enemies. And the rabbi that was there said, you need to remove that petition. Jews do not forgive their enemies. Jews uh, do not pray for their enemies. I don't want to say anything uh, beyond that, but there is a different perspective, and Jesus brings it to these Levitical rules today in the gospel. Because he's perfectly aware of who these laws were for. So he speaks in a very hyperbolic fashion, exaggerated, you know. He tells people they're not to any longer uh, think of the, the um, truthfulness of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They're to be generous with others. They're to pray for their enemies. They're to turn the other cheek. And in this text, he universalizes this. He universalizes this. And he says that we're to do that for everybody. And that that's God's intention. 
And in his words and in his works and in his ministry, he is announcing this as being faithful to the great tradition of where he comes from. You know, this may startle some people, but when I was in seminary, uh, one of my New Testament professors said, you're never going to understand Jesus until you realize that he was not the first Christian. Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jew. And so when he said these things, he was speaking to his people about God's new thing, or new old thing, that God's saving embrace, God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness was for everybody. And those proscriptions that are in the book of Leviticus are for, to be, for everyone. You don't just treat your fellow co-religionists with that kind of justice and equity. You do that for everybody. And that is at the center. That is part of the prophetic understanding of holiness, which is social justice, conversion of heart, worship. And we should open ourselves to those things. So this week, when you think about this, uh, think about the mystical journey, by the way, because that's a way in here to understand uh, how you live and react to other people. And uh, don't think about the church rather triumphantly as an institution. We have made some of the similar mistakes that I have just described in Leviticus for a long time. So it's time always to get back to basics. Also reflect on this. I'm not so sure that an absolute pacifism is the best choice under every circumstance. And that is a, a uh, conversation that we need to have in Episcopalian 101. But I will say two great heroes of the 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. did practice that. Right? And you and I are living in a situation now where we are, ha we are undergoing endless war. And there's got to be something done about talking about being people of peace. So reading something like this from Matthew reminds us all uh, that we're to be peacemakers and that that is the default position. Amen.